Hi everyone, and welcome back to Historical Friction, a podcast about retelling the past and reframing the present through pop culture and fiction. I'm Alice, and for this week's episode, I'm joined by repeat offender and recurring guest, Dr. Melissa Gustin. This is a sequel that nobody asked for to our mammoth Da Vinci Code Angels and Demons episode. We watched Inferno, which is another truly awful Dan Brown film. Fair warning, the main plot of this film is about an attempt to destroy the human population through a pandemic, so if you're not in the mood for that, that's fine. We talked about conspiracy theories, about paranoia, about geniuses, about Dante and Italian history and poetry and art and all of the things that you would expect from an episode, plus some predictable digressions. As always, you can find us on Twitter at History Friction. You can also support the podcast on Patreon as well. We really appreciate any help that you can give us, and if you sign up, you can also get our monthly digests where we talk about what we've been doing, what we're watching and reading, and the upcoming episodes that we're planning at the moment. There's absolutely no pressure to support us on Patreon if you feel like giving us your love and affection in different ways. We just like to hear from you on Twitter, or you can leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to the show. With that, here's the episode. Hi, Melissa. Welcome back. Thank you for coming on the show again. This is your third time third i think so yeah and uh once again we've watched something really bad except this time it was my fault because i suggested this you did what did we watch we've watched the third installation in the dan brown series about robert langdon the harvard symbologist (laughs) (laughs) it's called inferno and i am here to reclaim my own title from myself of making well, this time you made me, of watching the worst film for the podcast. And I'm very proud to have all three of them. Yeah. So Inferno came out in 2016. It's the third of the films to come out. I don't know where it falls within the book series, but where the Da Vinci Code has obviously got this whole device about like the Mona Lisa and all of the Leonardo paintings and the idea of the Holy Grail and Angels and Demons has all sorts of like papal shenanigans... This one takes place... Hot Pope Summer. Hot Pope Summer lives in our hearts forever. (laughs) This one takes place largely in Florence, and the kind of historical source material, for want of a better phrase, is the Divine Comedy. Do you want to just, like, try and explain (laughs) what this film is about? (laughs) So, I didn't read this book, um, which is probably for the best for my mental health. Um, This is... The ongoing saga of Robert Langdon, played by Tom Hanks, um, being involved in weird cryptic adventures with a much younger woman. Yeah. Um, the one funny thing in the whole movie is he introduces this girl as his niece and an Italian security guard goes, please, this is Italy. You don't have to say niece. Um, and <laughs> it's great. It's great. It's the only funny thing in the whole film. Um, but so Robert Langdon wakes up in a hospital in Florence, having had visions of, I guess, the introduction to 28 Days Later. <laughs> He's having all these hallucinations of... About, like, the end of the world. Yeah. And people in sort of, with their heads twisted backwards in rivers of blood. 
all kinds upside of down things. in burning pits yeah missing hands plague so faces we... all sorts of the, the kind of like really violent imagery of plague imagery plague imagery and hell yeah. imagery the good stuff um, oh, yeah. So he he wakes up and this very young, beautiful doctor says, oh, you know, you're in Boston. Do you know what day it is? And he looks out the window and sees that he is, in fact, in Florence because he sees the tower of the um, Palazzo Vecchio or the Palazzo della Signoria in through the window and freaks out and shenanigans ensue. Um, cops appear and try to kill them and they run away and it turns into the whole thing. Turns out he's got some kind of... They call it a Faraday pointer um, made of human bone that projects an image of Botticelli's painting of the circles of hell. And he begins to think that he is infected with some kind of virus plague while continuing to have hallucinations. This leads into into all kinds of adventures where they go to the Boboli Gardens in order to get into the Palazzo Vecchio. They are on alternate sides of the river. Uh, we'll come back to that <laughs> yeah <laughs> so there are hijinks essentially the kind of narrative threat in this case like the big danger is that someone is going to release a plague to cut the population of the world in half yes and the goal is to try and stop the plague from being released it's yes. worth saying before we get any further that like most of this film is like eco-fascist Heike yeah. eugenicist. Super. There's a lot of stuff about how there's this kind of like crazy super villain science dude who wants to put like sterilization drugs in drinking water to reduce the human population and is obsessed with the idea of this kind of like final human apocalypse. Yeah. He gives a TED talk about it. It's yeah. great. Um, <laughs> um, so the the thing with that is, so he, and it's the, does the, Disease is called Inferno because for reasons that never really become clear, the crypto-fascist white guy throws himself off a tower fairly early on, mm. um, but appears to be obsessed with Dante. Um, yeah. Whereas in the, the earlier films, this would have been explained at great length through flashbacks. And it would have turned out that like Dante was involved in some secret like plague-spreading yeah. society or something, and there would have been a historical antecedent, and it would have been, you know... Something about the Florentine Civil War being reenacted in secret for the last several hundred years. But in this case, they're just like, no, he just really likes Dante. <laughs> he just really likes Dante and uses the, the Botticelli's infer- um, drawing of the circles of hell to send a code. And then they go into, you know, they go and look at one of the paintings in the Palazzo Vecchio. And this is, and there's a death mask of Dante. And that's pretty much the sum total of the historical. Yeah content it's just a really thin veil of like we need to get robert langdon the character involved somehow and that means there has to be some kind of some kind of symbolic puzzle for him to unpick at one point they throw enrico dandolo the pope who lived forever this is never explained what Um, is that even about (laughs) first of all he was a doge not a pope right a doge he was the doge who lived forever and he's buried in the hagia sophia the whole thing about why it's enrico dandolo the doge who lived forever like even I don't know that story. No. So the, it it's a really weird. It's just the most thinly veiled excuse for yeah. anything. It doesn't make any sense at all. But once again, as we talked about last time, I think really the whole thing is weirdly prescient mm-hmm. and also really to blame 
for, or at least shoulders some of the blame for conspiratorial thinking about, mm. I don't know, the situation that we found ourselves in for the past yeah. um, couple of couple of years. Completely. I want to talk about the Divine Comedy just as like a little bit yeah. of context here. <laughs> it's a really odd choice for this. Most people yeah. only know about the Inferno, which is only the first third of the poem. It yeah. is a, the whole of the Divine Comedy is hell, purgatory, paradise. Hell, it's often also called Inferno because it's the, that's the Italian. Yeah. And it's this fever dream that takes place over the Easter weekend. <laughs> <laughs> In which Dante kind of has a breakdown and sort of hallucinates his own reenactment of the harrowing of hell, which is over the Easter weekend between the crucifixion and the resurrection, Christ descends into hell and through his power, people become able to be saved again. So in the kind of medieval Christian uh, philosophy of this, what he does is he opens up purgatory and he reconnects kind of the escalator of salvation. I don't know what else to say. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. Jacob's ladder. So, know. exactly. Um. That, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> oh my God. So, so the idea is that Christ goes through hell and Dante sort of sees various points in his journey through hell. He sees the places that Christ has been. Purgatory is then opened up. There's this idea of the kind of like divine waiting room where you can spend enough time there after death to atone for your sins and eventually achieve salvation. And this is a kind of medieval catholic way of viewing the world the idea of of penance but that you can also do that after death and it's a complicated thing but the point is that essentially if you're not bad enough to go to hell forever and you're not good enough to go straight to heaven you get stuck in purgatory for a while and there are a lot of um pagans and sort of pre-christian figures who would in theory have been good enough had they had the opportunity Exactly. But are They're kept of, in limbo. Yeah, until they can sort of get enough, mm. I guess, residual Jesus juice yes. out of purgatory to exactly. ascend. Um, but exactly. then the, and, and then sort of they go into paradise, and yeah. that's where you get Beatrice, who was a woman that Dante knew briefly as a child. Yeah. And then met again once as adults, but then she married someone else. Yeah. But he was sort of, sort of, he was, he was madly obsessed with her mm -hmm. for his entire life, mm -hmm. um, even though she never gave him the time of day. Yeah. And, and, and there's some question over whether, like, Beatrice is even a real person. She exists as this kind of poetic figure. Mm -hmm. um, there's a woman who may be the Beatrice that he is inspired by, who is also known as Bice di Folco Portinari. Mm -hmm. um, but... The kind of the he's a fucking poet. Like she doesn't yeah. have to be real. She's no. a vibe. She's an atmosphere. And she's so, a vibe and an atmosphere, and then becomes his guide in heaven. She's his guide in paradise. Yeah. So his guide through purgatory is actually the poet Virgil. And Virgil's is one of these examples of a pagan who would have been good enough, and so therefore lives in limbo in this kind of like gray area where all of the great poets and the unbaptized go. And so the journey of the Divine Comedy is this big extended metaphor for ideas of salvation and damnation he visits all the circles of hell and his image of hell is still one of the ones that we kind of like see most dominating european culture 
Purgatory and Paradise, everyone always kind of ignores. They are a bit boring. Yeah, they're really boring. I <laughs> had to read them in actually... college and they're just really yeah. dull. I've read I've read Hell. I've read like half of Purgatory. And then I was like, you know what? Nothing's happening anymore. And like, it's nice poetry. And this is a great translation. I read the Dorothy L. Sayers translation, which Ooh. is brilliant. Shout out to any other Sayers <laughs> fans. Um, but most people only know the Inferno part of it. And that's where all of the imagery in this film comes yeah. from. Well, and one of the reasons we know it is because it was so popular for so long that not only is it in, not only did it influence, I mean, even Michelangelo and yeah. the the Last Judgment of the Sistine Chapel, but well into the 19th century, you get just so many images because there's a certain degree where parts of it are inspired by the episodic nature of like Ovid's metamorphoses mm -hmm. where you get sort of the doomed lovers, you get people who are narrating their stories to Dante mm -hmm. in these really evocative languages. And it's really human because it's a lot of them are real people mm -hmm. that were either Dante knew personally or were one generation removed Yeah, who then show up as, you know, in living memory figures in this poem who he describes in either really horny or really, really gross detail. <laughs> and so this is an image that we have, you know, there's hundreds of images of Paolo and Francesca. Right. Who are these sort of faded lovers. She falls in love with her husband's younger brother um, over reading a book. They fuck, they get caught, they die. And mm. then they sort of get stuck in hell together, sort of being wispy shades who can't consummate properly anymore. Yeah. And, and so like so many of these scenes from the Divine Comedy enter into art, the idea of like Beatrice as this kind of guide through heaven. Yeah. A lot of the language around her as well is also something that's constantly being reproduced. And the there are so many artists well into the 20th century. We've talked about the Pre-Raphaelites on this yep. show many, many times. I was going to say Rossetti. Dante Gabriel Rossetti was obsessed with Dante, the poet Dante Alighieri, as this kind of like namesake, but also was completely fixated on the idea of Beatrice as this sort of like distant muse. And you can see a lot of parallels in the way that he talks about Elizabeth Siddle and the other women that he has relationships with, with this kind of fetishization and fantasy. Mm -hmm. I, we are trying so hard to bring the historical context to this film. <laughs> but the, well, I mean, but this, the point of this is, is that there's, there is so much depth and richness of material yes. that could have been Da Vinci coded Yes, in a really, I mean, I'm not going to say in a good way, but, but in, in an a evocative fun way, way or yeah. an interesting way. And this, it's literally, there's one anagram mm. and a poem on the back of the mask that looks like it was written in Sharpie. Yeah. Because it was. Yeah. Like, that's, that's it. Even the stage, the, the actual sort of scene setting of Florence is kind of stingy. It is. I really it's wondered weird. about that. It's really stingy. And so the only real... Like, I hate to say it, the only real sort of street chase that you get, mm. which, I mean, that was kind of the fun of the of Angels and Demons, is all yeah. of the different sort of street runs through Rome. And you get to see yeah, all yeah. these different places. Sponsored by the Italian Tourist Board. Yeah. Sponsored by the Italian Tourist Board. And not the papacy. Um, <laughs> but so the only real thing you get is you get a run from the hills of Florence, so out in... And I actually, I'm fairly certain, again, the wrong side of the river. Oh my I'm God. fairly certain where they're based is on the other side of Florence. And then they go to the Boboli Gardens. And then 
they go, oh, I have to go to the, well, we can get from, we can get to the Palazzo Vecchio from the Bogli Gardens. And so what they're doing is they're taking the Vasari Corridor, mm-hmm. which is, as you might guess from the name, a corridor built by Vasari, Giorgio mm-hmm. Vasari, um, that connects the Palazzo Pitti to the Palazzo Vecchio on the other side of the Arno. Um, and so they get into this, and it must be noted that this is a corridor that leads directly into the Uffizi, yeah. the, 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 the museum, the Uffizi, that has a whole bunch of Leonardo's, some <laughs> Michelangelo's, a uh, whole bunch of Titian's, all of the Botticelli's you've ever heard of. Yeah. And it's an unlocked door in a public garden in a space that hasn't been open to the public yeah. for about 15 years. Yeah. Um, so you can, you, can, you can get tours of the Vasari Corridor, but yeah. it's not like place that you can go no regularly and it's, it's not, not a it's not a pedestrian subway it's not a pedestrian subway and it's not the kind of thing where the italian government the eu the uffizi people are going to just let a back door be open be unlocked <laughs> into the Boboli gardens yeah so it's that's like the one thing and then you don't even really get to see the good bits of the Vasari corridor no so or the Uffizi there's nothing you'd think that they would have found a way to shoehorn in the Uffizi and <laughs> considering there's like the reference to Botticelli oh Botticelli did this drawing it's one yeah. slide of the real one is yeah. in the Uffizi you could yeah. just go like so it's just it feels very cheap compared Completely. to the other ones and then you get one shot of venice and that's you get saint mark's square and the they walk straight into saint mark's they don't queue they don't have pre-booked tickets they, <laughs> they, they get don't straight up bags, to the horses <laughs> which is impossible to get to like i've tried they're really yeah. it's hard to get to my favorite part of this is that they get off the train in padua and like five minutes later <laughs> they're on a water taxi <laughs> into venice and they just pull up at saint mark's square and it's like i don't think you can do it that quickly i've made that trip you can do it but it's not that fast it's not that fast it's not that fast i also Um, have to say there is this so there is this kind of chase scene through st mark's basilica and i was recently in venice not to be totally obnoxious but i oh when were you in venice ali i was also recently in venice (laughs) (laughs) so you can back me up on the fact that you can't go you can't move a meter in Venice no. without a scansion rope and a security guard. Yeah. It is like, there's a line in the film about how all of Venice is a museum. Like, how do we find a museum in a city that's all museum? And and it's like, well, the, that's also Well, they're reflected. all wearing uniforms and yeah. they've got metal detectors and scanners and yeah. you can't just walk in with your bag. And that's, that's reflected in the fact that you literally cannot move without being yelled at <laughs> for, yeah, going, it's great. for being on the wrong side of the safety rope. And it's like, I, I, I have to say... As someone who has worked in historic sites <laughs> and as someone who continues to work in museum spaces, the absolute disrespect for the yep. barrier rope in yep. these films yep. is something that just absolutely, like, I can enjoy some highly kitschy, trashy, whatever the yeah. fuck. Like, I can I can do I that. I can it's turn great. my brain off. It's great. But every time I see someone just, like, hop a rope... Or, like, just wander down a corridor with an unlocked door and nobody stops them. This part of my brain that I cannot turn off just starts screaming. My favourite, this is I wanted to bring up, is there not being an alarm or a security screw in the vitrine with the death mask of Dante. Yeah. It's in an unwatched room. Yeah. Behind, okay, it's, ooh, it's behind some stanchions. It's in a vitrine. 
but apparently it doesn't have a security screw or a proximity sensor. Um, and it's also, they've supposed- only got they've only got ropes there because it's owned by a private it's owned by a private collector. <laughs> Oh, yes, this private collector bought it from us, but he lets it it's this is a really common arrangement. There's a the, we sold it to the private collector who leaves it on deposit with us on long-term loan. No. No. <laughs> that's not how museums. That's not how museums. It's work. very common in museums to have someone like sponsor an item. Yeah. Or like donate specifically for its upkeep or they adopt it. They adopt it exactly, but they yeah. don't own it (laughs) they don't get a say in how it's displayed you don't sell the object to a donor and then let them it's just not how it also there are like fucking dozens of copies of dante's death mask yeah but this is the original alley this is the original copy of dante's death mask and it doesn't you know it's brand it just looks brand new yeah um it was and it's got it's got a little sharpie poem it's got a little sharpie poem on the back oh god but yeah, and then I just it was oh god. But then the and then so they end up in Istanbul. Yeah. So um, okay, so it turns out that they're going on this whole adventure trying to find where the plague is going to originate <laughs> from. We have to try and talk about the plot of this film. So Robert Langton is in Florence with a fake head wound and like drug induced psychosis. The and only good character. Sorry? Who causes this? This is the other thing. Is the only good character in this film? Yes. Is one of the villains? Yes. Um, who causes? He runs um a security agency on a boat. Who, <laughs> on a boat. Who causes? Who 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 who's the fixer essentially? Yeah. Who orchestrates the situation whereby Robert Langdon thinks he's been kidnapped and shot, and given the inferno plague but is in fact has a scalpel head wound um and has just been really drugged up with benzodiazepines which can apparently cause a skin rash (laughs) (laughs) so this whole setup that the film opens with of him being in the hospital this like rogue cop shooting the place up all of that is a total setup none of it is real it is a constructed reality according to the boat (laughs) man and the whole point of this is to trick him into helping the generic brunette hot chick to, like, helping her find the plague and ensuring that it is, in fact, dispersed. Until they find out that this is what the plan is. Yeah. And then change sides. Yeah. To prevent this from happening because so- the the security team actually does kind of want to live um, yeah. and doesn't want to orchestrate the sixth distinction yeah so so they get to venice they go up the top and they look at the um the horses on the top and then felicity jones who plays the generic brunette this is the other funny line in the film turns to him and says are we in the wrong basilica because they realize (laughs) that they're actually supposed to be in istanbul in Hagia sophia god knows how they get there in time I, I mean, I'm sure there's a ferry, like... <laughs> oh, no, they take the World Health Organization private plane and they, like, dick around in Hagia Sophia. They dick around in this ancient sewer system underground where there is a classical music concert being played. For the summer... It's the Summer Solstice Festival in the city... The 6th century city cistern. Yeah. Which... Obviously. Uh, obviously. And there's a... I think one of the local sort of bumbling policemen they go oh well is this hooked up to the water supply and they go no we've modernized 
<laughs> it's 20 it's 2016 we have an actual like sewer system now <laughs> which but is a tourist attraction yeah which i have to say is one of the like accidental moments where the film tells on itself because like yeah. the the implicit orientalism in being like well of course in istanbul they're still using the sixth century sewage system and then having the guy be like no we've modernized is yeah. is one of the few moments that you see this kind of like film world sort of like yeah. crack at the seams they don't They're evacuate like, anyone from this concert they just no. go down there and try and find the plague in and... spacesuits with guns um, um it's insane and it's obviously just... they find it but obviously there's also an explosion because i mean um ron howard loves to show a pressure wave knocking people over <laughs> um it happens in everything and it's all i mean it's always very funny yeah. Um, and it clearly uses up a lot of the, the special effects budget. Yeah. Um, but it is also, oh no, are the bombs going to go off? Are, are people going to get knocked over? Yeah. Is a bit, be- yeah. I'm like, we saw it in Hot Pope Summer. Yeah. Uh, We've been here before. <laughs> We've been here before. I think, and th- I mean, they do also sort of make references back that I think the film thinks are quite clever. And it, at one point he goes, oh, anagrams. I used to be good at those. Oh god, it's a poem. Like yeah. how are you gonna figure this one out? Yeah. Like it just feels very lazy. And then in the few moments where it does sort of go, somebody in the production crew has gone, it's twenty sixteen. We have to be slightly less racist. <laughs> they um yeah. It it sort of it jars a bit. Yeah. Um and it's very sort of strange. But yeah. I, but they contain the plague. They Everyone's contain the fine. plague. Everyone lives. Everyone's fine. I mean, obviously, also, all the bad guys die in the explosion yeah. and also by being shot. And, or stabbed. Or stabbed. Or just generally, like, murdered because they're bad guys. Or falling yeah. through the ceiling. In oh, yeah. Falling, the falling, falling through the ceiling of the Palazzo, Palazzo Vecchio and destroying a wood-paneled painting and then they just run away. Um, it's just... It's insane. It's crazy. So Not, like, yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. As we've said, this is the this is the film with the thinnest historical context. There's very little here. Having said that, what could be what could be better? Like, there are so many things that I can think of that I think you could really improve. Yeah, I mean, you were saying earlier about this, you know, the Civil War of Florence. About you know, there's one line about Dante being exiled. Yeah, I mean, there's so many parallels for the villain. Um, Zobrist, who looks like every tech mogul in mm. a Tom Ford suit. Um, <laughs> you know, he's white, he's blonde, he has a beard, he looks like a fascist. Yeah. For him to have connected with Dante as, you know, this figure who lived through a plague or was exiled from his homeland. Mm. Um, because part of the the narrative is that the Zobrist, the villain, has gone into hiding and no one has seen him for two years, so he sort of self-exiles mm. in order to achieve his political goals. You know, there's all of the stuff that became really popular during the, the pandemic about, like, Florence's little, like, wine windows yeah. that everybody thought were... You know, I mean, even just a little joke about like, oh, we thought these were about plague. You know, maybe they'll come back into popularity. They were about tax evasion, um, <laughs> not about plague. Um, you know, you could have done so many things with the Medici and yeah. the Duomo. They don't actually go inside the Duomo at all. No. Um, 
probably because it's actually not that interesting. Um, <laughs> it's like the most boring cathedral in Italy. It's big. Congratulations. You've got a dome. We've seen a dome. There was a dome in the last one. Um, <laughs> but there are all kinds of things where, you know, they don't dig into Botticelli at all. Botticelli's a really interesting figure for this. Yeah. Because he, you know, he starts as this very sort of homoerotic, decadent, intellectually classicizing painter, and then falls in with Savonarola and really goes nuts for a while. Yeah. And this then... fucking Savonarola. There's some of the Savonarola. <laughs> Savonarola never gets a look in. Savonarola would have been great for this. I, um, I mean, you, I, hey, how'd you no like religious conspiracy? <laughs> There's no, like, where's Machiavelli in this? Like, to have Florence and to have one projected image of Dante of Mm -hmm. Botticelli's Circles of Hell and nothing else. Yeah. And there's, I think there's the battle, is it the Battle of Cascina or the Battle of whatever it is? It's the one in, yeah. It's the one in the Palazzo Vecchio. It's still there. Um, It's not the ones that are lost. And to have, like, oh, there's two words on a flag and that's it. Like, yeah. that's the sum total of the historical context. Also, so the, the two words on the flag, Circa this whole, like, seek and you'll find and Seek and find, seek and find. That they have going on. It's basically the, what, 14th? 14th, 14th century. century equivalent of fuck around and find out. Yeah. Like, the reason that that slogan is on the flag is that it's like, you want you want to die? <laughs> Bitch, will kill Fine. you. It's, it's literally, it's fuck around and find out. It's not, like, a big mystery. It's not. But it becomes, it, like, gets built up into this, like, oh, seek and find for the girl. And so I think it's worth talking about the girl in this one. Sienna. So she's also named after an Italian city. Lol. Um, Sienna's a child genius. (laughs) Sienna is a child genius who met Robert Langdon when she was nine. And again, one of the only other funny things in this is he goes, what a weird kid. And he didn't mean to say it out loud. She goes, yes, I was. She's very serious and very dour. And then shockingly, spoiler alert, it turns out she was fucking the mad genius and his cra- is like his crazy follower. And she inevitably betrays him, um, Robert Langdon, because she's just been stringing him along getting him to solve this and the whole puzzle is for her but she Mm. couldn't solve it without him which is bizarre Um, given that she's supposed to be like the brilliant genius yeah she's like a doctor and has worked on everything with him but is just sort of like a doe-eyed idiot at the end of the day i think there's also some really interesting comparisons to make to um kingsman i haven't seen it (laughs) oh my god okay well you need to because There is a prequel to Kingsman about World War One. Oh. Um, oh. But you need to... See, it's actually really good. Okay. Um, the first movie is good. The second movie is trash. The third movie is the prequel, and it's actually really good. Okay. Um, except for the fact that it takes the historical high road, and in the film, you know, in the first movie, it features exploding heads with confetti, it takes the high road, and doesn't use Boney M's Rasputin <laughs> in a fight scene with Rasputin. Um... <laughs> And it was very disappointing to me as a as a film critic. Um, but anyway, so in the first Kingsman, there is exactly the same eco-fascist villain, right. played by Samuel L. Jackson with a lisp, it's very funny, who tries to kill a significant portion of humanity mm. in order, as be, it's the Gaia theory that this is a plague upon the earth. Um, and so that's, I think it, it's 
played, but it's played in such a different tone where like even Robert Langdon in Inferno is like, oh, well, you know, I don't agree with him, but he's really compelling. <laughs> Whereas in, in Kingsman, which is a disgusting, hyper-violent, camp, action yeah. sort of nonsense, almost entirely aimed at white men from the ages of 14 to 35 but in fact really popular with women ages sort of 18 to 35 for very different reasons in that one it's immediate like this guy is psychotic yeah this is really bad like even the yeah. fact that this is samuel l jackson we should probably kill samuel l jackson like it's never played as if it might be a good thing that right. half the earth dies yeah I mean, this is also, I hate I hate to say this, this is also a Star Trek episode. Yeah. I <laughs> there's mean, there's an episode a lot of, of things that are yeah. like this. <laughs> there's an episode of Deep Space Nine that is, it's one of the, like, weirdo holodeck episodes that involves Julian trying to play out his Bond fantasies. And the plan there is to flood the entire world and survive on a mountain. I mean, <laughs> and they I have think... to, like, solve the problem. But again, they are very clear throughout that this is, this is a weirdo Bond fantasy and you're not supposed to sympathize with the yeah. crypto fascist. There is an episode of, I want to say, Stargate Atlantis. Almost certainly. That's quite similar, where there's an, a bunch of, uh, you know, one of these Atlantean societies yeah. had a population problem, and so they've set it up that, like, Isn't everyone... is also the whole concept behind the Marvel films, that you have to, like, get rid of half of the world? I haven't yeah. seen them, but I think I mean, that's I, the plot, right? I think I watched one on a plane and fell asleep, but I think, yeah, the idea is that <laughs> the guy with the, the purple guy with the glove snaps his fingers and spider-man disappears um, <laughs> all i know about those films comes via memes <laughs> yeah basically same the point is um, that this has been done yeah i find it interesting that they do it in this way in 2016 yeah having the like super polished fascist advocating for eugenics and the whole thing is like hmm he's very Maybe. compelling he's well spoken he's well groomed he's wearing a nice suit it's like this is this is so something that was so much part of the like media conversation of the the twenty teens of yeah. like can you trust a fascist if they're dressed well? The answer is still no. Yeah, <laughs> they're still gonna try and kill us all. Yeah. Um, but I think that that very much ties into this idea that there is a conspiracy yes. behind things like a plague happening. Yes. And all of the eco-fascist shit that came out during the yeah. Penny D yeah. about, like, nature is healing. Yes. <laughs> and the unironic one, but I mean, not the fun ones where it's like, oh, the rats have come back out of the dumpsters and are now, like, fighting you on the streets. Like, that's <laughs> that's tongue-in-cheek stuff, um, because yeah. I did get charged by some fearless rats um, <laughs> in Guildford during, or in York during the pandemic. And that's a fun nature is healing. The real ones where it's like, oh, yes, a significant portion of the poors are going to die, yeah. and therefore the earth can heal. Like, well, no. We don't want that's that. Bad. That's bad. <laughs> that's bad. And the Chinese didn't do this on purpose. Yeah. That's but the, the idea other thing, of like the idea of and, like the lab engineered plague. Yeah, which is specifically designed to cull a certain number of people. Yeah. I think very much comes back to what we were talking about last time about the idea that there are these organizations or these people who are controlling things and causing things to happen and if you can just unravel the mystery yeah. and decode the clues, you can 
solve the mystery or stop the bad things from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and given the popularity of Dan Brown, I have a feeling that this is one of the things that influenced that kind of thinking yeah. in the Panda Express. Absolutely. Like, so Inferno, the book came out in 2013, the film came out in 2016. It is unreasonable to blame Dan Brown for pandemic conspiracies. But yeah. this comes back to what we talked about last time and the way that we have these kind of cultural panics and media articulates those anxieties and those fears. Yeah. And when you have media like this that is so mass produced and so yeah. like widespread, you have to take it seriously. Yeah. I keep thinking about the conversations that we had with our last Dan Brown episode where we're thinking yeah. about these ideas of like conspiratorial power, the fucking Illuminati thing. I know, you know? I know. all of this stuff about how there's this kind of like secret secret cabal and the way that that yeah. feeds very directly into histories of anti-Semitism, but yep. also the kind of paranoid behavior that we see around the kind of QAnon narratives. Yep. That is something that has only intensified since 2016. We yeah. have had a large number of supposedly very polished and polite fascists in yep. the public eye in the last eight years. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, somebody might say, okay, well, in this film, the fascist dies in the first three minutes. Um, but his, the idea is that he's there constantly on media. Yeah. Like, the whole, the whole way that we see him in the film is either through sexy flashbacks. Yeah. With Felicity, what's her face? And I refuse to learn her name no. because she looks exactly the same as the other ones because she's yeah. not French. Um... <laughs> And through things like a TED Talk yeah. or Davos-style roundtables, which are, I mean, there's no, these are direct, okay, I think it wasn't called TED, it was called Ed or something. Um, <laughs> like, it's not a subtle analog. Yeah, it's a Fred it talk. Is, it's a Fred talk. Is explicitly high production. Yes. You know, he's got the earphone microphone mm-hmm. piece that they all wear. He's doing the hand gestures. There's a slideshow. It's very explicitly a TED talk. Yeah. That Robert Langdon watches and goes, oh, well, he's a very compelling... Oh, his rhetoric is very compelling. His presentation is very... I don't agree with him. Oh, no. But... Yeah. So it it is very much a product of it's you know it's a product of its time it's yeah. reflecting what's happening in the discourse at that time because i think that's right around the time i think 2014 is when richard spencer starts yes becoming a figure out mm-hmm. in sort of the wider media mm-hmm. and so it is very much a reflection of that kind of thing yeah. i mean it could have been that it was the the eco-fascist guy from Mission Impossible who is very much played as a Unabomber by oh. a guy who has played the Unabomber. <laughs> like, I wonder if e- Ted Kaczynski's seen this film. <laughs> oh, God, I, I would love to see Ted Kaczynski's reaction to this film. Um, <laughs> but so we're in like, a film like Mission Impossible, mm. which I... Mission Impossible Fallout, where Henry Cavill reloads his arms. Um, I haven't seen this film. I have, again, only seen it through memes. It's, it's yeah. Uh, you've seen the best bits. But in that one, it's a similar kind of thing where there is this, like, shadowy cabal hmm. that's trying to detonate nuclear explosions. Right. I think in order to 
prevent more nuclear development? It's unclear. Um, but the villain in that is not a polished sort yeah. of, well, you know, designer suit, Ted Talk type. Yeah. He's a Ted Kaczynski. Yeah. Like, he wears a lot of camo. He doesn't shave. He's specifically played by a character actor. Yeah. Like, it's a very different, even though <clears throat> the goals are quite the same, the way the film portrays the villain says this is a lunatic and it's a good thing tom cruise is about to throw him out of a helicopter right oh wait no he throws he throws henry cavill out of a helicopter which is a sin um (laughs) but yeah so i think that that conspiracy and that reflection of the the contemporary media market and the obsession with fucking ted talks yeah like, oh yeah, absolutely. No one's gonna save the world in a fucking TED talk. No, no, no. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but yeah, so it's a really interesting the idea that this this fascist presents his ideas unchallenged. Yes. In that kind of environment, and that this is a good thing. Yes. Is even ugh. the like World Health Organization Sidza Babat Nutsen, who is beautiful. She's. I watched, age appropriate. She's gorgeous. She's age appropriate. I watched Borgen with my mum, like everyone else, and she's gorgeous. And I would watch yeah. her do anything, and she's brilliant. She plays someone from the World Health Organization, and she's like, "Oh yeah, this guy came to me and told me to back the use of sterilizing drugs and like birth control, essentially, but on a mass scale of sterilization in like prepped water and foods." And she's like, oh, and I threw him out of my office because I thought he was insane. But like, now I'm worried I should have taken him more seriously. And like, she puts him on a watch list. She puts him on a watch list. She puts him on a watch list. (laughs) And it's like, well, yeah, that's a a telling indictment of watch lists there, hey? Yeah. Handled. Solved. See it. Say it. Sorted. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. Well done. That's the sum total of action against him. Exactly. And that was something that, again, like really stood out in the way that everyone seems to interact with this man where they're like, either completely like fully smitten with him or they're like you know he seems like weird but kind of harmless but you know his rhetoric is kind of it's interesting it's compelling watching and so everyone just sort of lets him fly under the radar and i am once again at the point where i'm like dan brown has so much to answer for yeah (laughs) he has so many crimes yeah to answer for yeah like Come on, Dan Brown, what you need to do at this point is to, not to redeem yourself, but to do a little bit of redeeming, is do a John Grisham and actually, like, put your back behind a cause. Yeah. Like, John Grisham, same thing, lots of sort of conspiracy, trash, lawyer novels. Yeah. But then did The Innocent Man and, like, worked works with The Innocent Project and sort of went, I've seen a problem mm. that I've identified through my fiction writing and I'm going to actually put my money behind working to solve this yeah and but you know has that same level of popularity and you know has produced all of these films makes bazillions of monies and Mm -hmm. has been the number one selling author i think more than anybody else but has actually sort of gone okay the shit that i've put in my silly books also happens in the real world and i have a responsibility to do something about that yeah there's a just I think there's Dan Brown has not he pretends I think he says he's apolitical and like doesn't want to get involved yeah and doesn't see like he's like oh well it's all just made up like it's not like this isn't like it's not real Mm. like it's just a story Mm. you're like 
is it Dan Brown? Is it Dan? Is it, is it, is it, do you not think that this maybe yeah. reflects the world around us just a teensy tiny bit? Yeah. I do find it very funny in this film when Robert Langton doesn't have his memory and he's just kind of like, what's that thing that people drink in the mornings? And then is simultaneously like, oh yes, this is Botticelli's Circles of Hell, but he's put it in the wrong order and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, he's such a genius. He's so brilliant. And it's the kind of like the Sherlock concept of like, oh, oh flawless genius, can't do anything, but knows everything. Yeah. And then he has the audacity <laughs> at the end of the film when he has consistently just been like such a dick for the last three movies and like is so full of himself and so like incelly, smugly, yeah, repulsive to when Sienna is like, we're going to have a plague and solve the world's problems. He's like, being a genius doesn't give you a free pass to behave <laughs> however you want. <laughs> Like, well, I don't think you should. You would know Robert Langdon because you're, you've basically relied on these other women, yeah, to solve all of your problems for you uh, for the past, good. all of these films. My good man, I would love to see you uh, explain yourself to all of the security guards yeah. that you've just like climbed over. Because yeah. I thought that that was okay because you were a genius. But then again, yeah. I guess protecting a museum collection isn't quite the same as genocide. Um, this film is like floundering for a narrative yeah and it does kind of make me sad because there is so much like you know you've got Florence. there's so much there could have like, done on. there's could, so much you could talk about dante and like oh my god if you want some weird art yes you've got all the botticellis but if you if you're going to venice you can go to torcello which has one of the oldest representations of the devil if you are talking about dante you can go to ravenna where he is buried and see some of the other oldest representations of satan and hell and the idea of devilry in these well, the, incredible mosaics in both places like the there bargello, is so much the bargello has a living memory portrait of dante in a fresco in a chapel yeah in the bargello museum yeah. like it's the oh, it was by giotto yeah like yeah seriously there, I, there's so much that you could do there's i mean they could have gone to padua and gone they to go the to Arena padua chapel. they spent 30 seconds in padua on their way to venice they didn't go to the scriveni chapel <laughs> they didn't go to the scriveni chapel <laughs> which has a massive last judgment on it yeah and was just I just they they skip so much and then there's um I'm just I'm just I'm still mad because we spent all that time looking at chalices in <laughs> the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> we spent all that time looking for like is that a vagina? <laughs> is that a? Is I mean that it is. It's always a vagina. Is it a vagina? Who could possibly say? It, it we spent all this time. Every time there's like a curve or a hollow in anything, and it's like that's a womb. And and this time you have so many artistic references, you have so many historical references, you have so much material that you could play with, but I guess that requires a little bit too much effort. Yeah, he he really phoned this one in. Yeah, yeah, it's just really. I mean, you know, I just I was recently in Florence, you see, because <laughs> um, I'm You're a dickhead. Such a dick. Such a dick. Uh, yeah, I was recently in Florence. To be fair, I was there shepherding my parents around. <laughs> But, like, just the idea that you're Robert Langdon and you don't go to the Uffizi. Yeah. But, like, you talk, they, it's sort of, it's implied in the film 
that he's well known to this other character, um, the Duomino, who is this expert on Dante, who works at the Duomo. Um, you know, he's known to all of the security guards. Yeah. He knows all of the stuff about, like, there's the, the, the one other funny, really joke is that they he goes through the secret door in the Palazzo Vecchio and it's not that he knows this it's that he went on like a tour of the secrets of the Palazzo that Vecchio was funny. Like, okay that's actually really funny that was funny but like this it's the total lack of I mean say what you want about Bernini was not the sculptor of the fucking Illuminati like <laughs> at least angels and demons like there was an investment in the history and in the visual language of baroque rome yeah absolutely it really was you got the sense that they that even dan brown and the the directors and the producers and everybody involved really wanted to give you a sense that you were in rome completely that this was a mystery at the very heart of the Catholic Church, which is the seat, you know, the seat of power, the yeah. sea, all of it, that, you know, you were in the Chigi Chapel, mm. you were in, you were in, scare quotes, in the Pantheon, because they couldn't film and it was all CGI. Um, <laughs> but this one, it was like, okay, I didn't even catch when they cut through Padua. Yeah. Like... It's literally, that- it's literally the sign on the train station where they, they beat the guy over the head and they jump off the train and it just says Padova and that's it. Yeah, and that's like... Wh- so then they get on another train from Padova to, to Venice? Like, do they drop... There's no investment But somehow they beat in- him there. Somehow yeah. they beat him there. Yeah, and even though he knows that they're going there. Yeah. Um, oh, so- it's because uh, they took a water taxi and he had to get the number one Vaporetto down the Grand Canal. <laughs> <laughs> from the train station to St. Mark's. That's, and well, he probably he got yelled at. <laughs> because... He should have booked ahead. Because uh, especially, because if they went, uh, you know, during the summer, it could have been the Biennale. And there's just no fucking water taxis about. Uh, we were recently in Venice, you see, at the time of the Biennale. <laughs> because oh, no, 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 no. This came out in 2016, which Oh, so it wouldn't have been a Biennale year. architecture Biennale. It was an yeah. architecture Biennale. Excuse so, me, there is still a Biennale. It's just the architect. Yeah, but who fucking cares about that? Um... <laughs> Not not the Da Vinci Code, not Dan Brown. Uh, but yeah, so there's just... It was such a waste that there's so... I mean, they could have done the whole thing in Florence. They could yeah. have done the whole thing in Venice. There's so much... I mean, a, da Vinci, or a Dan Brown set in Venice. Oh my God. With the doges and... Yeah. The, I mean... The I, weird schools, me, all of the, the weird all schools, of the shenanigans, all of the conspiracies. The I mean, the the courtesans. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff that could have been done. Yeah. I mean, they could have done nothing with Machiavelli, like we said, nothing with Machiavelli, nothing with Savonarola, nothing with anything in the Renaissance. It's just sort of yeah. going. Oh, the plague was great because it caused the Renaissance. Which, but then I cannot never get never gets. <laughs> Okay, so like I remember in the the in when dinosaurs roamed the earth, this was some this was one of these hot takes on Tumblr. Yeah. That the plague was bad, but it was good because it caused the Renaissance. I mean, that's still very much an idea that's hanging around. Oh yeah, it still is. Um but that this was that in in the world of Robert Langdon. Yeah. 
that's something that they could have gotten a lot of ground out of. Yes. And, like, it's obviously, it's wrong and it's poor history. Yeah. But that's the kind of sort of pseudo-historical idea that, like, in a previous book could have gotten a lot of, a lot of work. Like, you could have talked about how that led to the rise of the Medici and to international, I mean, do you want a conspiracy theory? International banking from the Renaissance onward. <laughs> um, yeah. All of these kinds of things, you know, there's nothing about the role that Florence played in the development of the Renaissance. There's nothing about this idea of Florence as the David against the Goliath Completely. of the Catholics. There's nothing, or, you know, if you want to play the Venice, the only sort of Venice thing that you really get is the idea that Venice and Enrico Dandolo were involved in the Crusades, which is why you end up in Istanbul. Yeah. But there's nothing about what the Crusades were or how that sea exchange influenced venice right or like all of these things that could have they could have made some really bad shit bad history out of yeah none of that's there at all it's just one picture of dante and dante's death mask and that's yeah. it no completely. so it's just it's a really weird it's just phoned in and all of yeah. i mean to be f on the film criticism side all of the performances are phoned in like from start to finish only the italian bit parts are trying yes um, which great for the lady who played the pregnant security guard who is clearly having the time of her life <laughs> um everybody else is clearly just there for a paycheck uh yeah Oh, there was I... also the slightly racist um, portrayal of a street vendor in Venice. That was fun. Yeah. The, one of the ways that this film constantly tells on itself is the kind of, like, little weird racist asides. Mm -hmm. um, you have the thing about, like, oh, they've modernised the plumbing in Istanbul. You have the representation of a woman who is kind of, like, implied to be Roma, maybe? Yeah. Selling, strongly implied. Strongly implied to be Roma, selling things on the street in Venice and accepting 100 euros to help them out of, well, to help Sienna out of this grate. And it looks like, it looks like she's gonna take the money and just yeah. leave them there. Like, it's, that's one of the Completely. moments of tension in the film. Completely. Is that she's standing there with this money in her hand, looking like she's about to just leave them in their little sewer grate trying to escape mm -hmm. the only black person in the film. Yeah, you have the only black person in the film being the one who decides to betray the World Health Organization because he would like to blackmail the world. Um, you and get money. Also, yeah, you also... And then have, dies horribly. Dies awfully. You have the man who runs this kind of like weird secret security service who again is one of the only interesting characters in it because he's like you know what we actually don't want to cause the apocalypse like we would like to not have a plague thank you very much yeah and changes sides he is south asian and he seems to have a drawer full of mughal and uh like 13th through 16th century indian jeweled daggers and like hardstone knives and things like that which is what he's using to kill people he's using these little like wrist blades and like mughal knives it's a bit odd. Everyone else in this film has a gun. He's got a knife. Yeah. I don't know. I have some but questions about that. But he's also, like, really suave and poshly British. Yes. Um, called Mr. Sims. Yes. Um, <laughs> which is, to be fair, a great villain name. Oh, it's great. Um, I don't expect good things from Dan Brown, but I also no. wish that it wasn't this fucking bad. 
<laughs> I have a book that I picked up in the free book exchange in my apartment building <laughs> called The Botticelli Secret. Oh god. From 2010, um which is pitched as the Da Vinci Code the... for Girls. Oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to. Oh my God. And the whole thing is that there's this woman, she's like a sex worker, an artist model, and there's like a secret code in the Primavera. <laughs> is it Simonetta Vespucci? Uh, no, it's not. I'm really surprised they didn't make any bones out of Simonetta Vespucci, <laughs> who is not Primavera, uh, <laughs> who is not Venus. Uh, she died before Botticelli painted that painting. She never modeled for him. Um, she's just blonde. Like, there was more than one blonde woman in Florence. Right. Uh, anyway. So, um, I... So I was rewatching the Medici. Oh, uh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm research. gonna read this Botticelli secret book, and, um, <laughs> we might, we might do an episode on it. We might have to compare and contrast. Love it. I, I just, I would like some hijinks in Florence. That's the, that's my main takeaway from yeah. this film, is that you could do so much more with that. I think you should do um, Da Vinci's Demons. Oh, you've been saying this. I have been saying this, and I'm right. Okay. Uh, yeah, because it's trash. Okay. But at least it's fun trash. Okay. Yeah. That takes itself... It both Because it stars, it both takes itself very seriously and doesn't... But also has this whole, like, global conspiracy thing where it sends Leonardo da Vinci to South America oh to, like, what? nearly be sacrificed by the Mayans. Like, it's great. So I feel that I have to mention this if we're talking about like weird <laughs> for about five minutes in like the 2000s there was a CBBC yep. Leonardo series starring yep. Jonathan Bailey of Bridgerton as Leonardo <laughs> he's like he's a child in this yeah um, I saw it because the guy who taught singing at the Saturday musical theatre group that I went to plays Cosimo de' Medici. I am delighted by this. Machiavelli's in it. Where can I watch it? It's great. (laughs) I mean, I mean, it's not great, but it's, it's doing something with the history and with the art and with weird global ancient conspiracies dating back to the Romans. Yeah. Um, and is very sort of Dan Brownie in a stars kind of way. Yeah. Um, but it's also more. a lot more fun. I just want something smarter. I just wanted more. I just, we deserve better than this. We do. We do deserve better than this. And then we punish ourselves yeah. um, for deserving that yeah. by, by watching, watching Inferno. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have to say, this is the only, before doing this, I had not seen either of the other Dan Brown films before we did the episode. I had seen this one because my ex made me watch it, ironically, in like 2017. And I blocked it so completely from my memory that I was halfway through rewatching it before I was like, I have seen this. (laughs) I think I watched it when I was sick after finishing my PhD. And I was like, I've literally watched everything else on netflix (laughs) i'm gonna watch this one and then regretted it because it was really bad uh and i i watch bad movies so i i know i know from bad we're gonna wrap this up um it's not gonna do a three-hour episode this time we're not doing a three-hour episode this time for further recommendations you've obviously already pitched da vinci's demons i know that you're a big fan of the medici series I am. Is there anything else that kind of scratches these itches that you would suggest? Okay. Even worse than Inferno. Oh, no. There, it, yeah. But about Florence, 
there is, and I cannot remember what it's called now, um, there is a Roberto Cavalli-funded film starring a Hayden Christensen and I want to say Leighton Meester, um, uh, the so- Craig the Social Worker, Craig Parkinson from Misfits, in a softcore porn, high fashion adaptation of The Decameron <gasps> from like 2011. Oh and my they're God. all wearing like Roberto Cavalli runway dresses and like acting out The Decameron. And I cannot for the life of me remember what it is called. But it's shit. Yeah. And it's deranged. Uh-huh. Like, and definitely softcore porn. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can tell like, you from my experience of accidentally making typos while searching for the Decameron, there is a lot of porn <laughs> riffing on that genre. <laughs> I once accidentally well, Googled not, Decameron. And it, is <laughs> not, it is not Decameron. It is not Dick Cameron. It is, but it, I will look it up. Thank you. And I will make sure that you know what it's called. But it I watched it in like a fever dream. Oh my god. Thinking it was actually gonna be a serious yeah. semi-serious film. <laughs> but it that's where and it's just it's nuts. Incredible. And it's all of like the the cast of the OC dressed like high fashion pre-Raphaelite paintings of the Decameron boning their way through the countryside of Florence and like a horny monk. Wow. Yeah. It's, and they've all, but they've all got the ridiculous Decameron names (laughs) um, in like, but they like leave Florence because there's a plague and it's great. I, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yes. Add that to your list. Yeah, I would also just generally suggest that people read the Decameron because it's yeah. weird and fun and super horny and like kind of delightful. Yeah. Um, I read it when I was in my teens and it was brilliant. I would also recommend reading, reading Inferno, like actually reading the Divine Comedy. Yeah, there is some very interesting stuff in there. Um, yeah, the first section in particular, the section about hell, is like genre defining <laughs> in yeah. quite a literal way. Um, the rest of it's fairly boring, whatever. Yeah. But like, but there is so the one, much out there. The one trivia fact about it that I will always remember is that's where "Abandon All Hope, Ye Who Enter Here" yes. comes from, and that's written over the gate to hell. Yeah, it also is the inspiration for one of my favorite paintings of all time, which is Dante at Virgil on In Fairs by uh, William Adolphe Bougereau, which is just, I think, the horniest academic painting of all time yeah and it's you've seen it even if you don't know you've seen it it's the dante and virgil are in the back and then there's two nude men wrestling and biting each other in the foreground and it's a complete anomaly in bougereau's oeuvre because he was sort of known for painting softcore porn nude women and like the birth of venus and then all of a sudden here's like dante and virgil watching Two dudes have really bitey foreplay in hell. Um, <laughs> we have to end it there. <laughs> we have to end. I mean, on brand. On Absolutely. brand. <laughs> Melissa, thank you so much. If people want to find you on the internet, where are you? I am available on all reasonable social media platforms, i.e. Twitter and Instagram, at Hosmeriana. And I tweet too much and I post too much. Amazing. So 
Come and find me. We will almost certainly have you back on the episode on the show in the future. Hopefully with something that we actually enjoy watching this time. No. No. I'm not giving up my titles of having all of the worst films that you have to watch. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter, as always, at History Friction, and drop us a message there if you've got any more suggestions or recommendations. We will almost certainly be following up with some of Melissa's suggestions from this episode, so if there are any that you'd like us to prioritise, that'd be great. See you soon.